SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. The credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast, and they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the bitter end. This is Sequel Cast, and your hosts are best that I inform you. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise, one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. I thought I'd cut off a finger, but he said it wouldn't be enough. And uh, Alex. I cut off a finger and it grew back. We are talking about the third film in the original five-film cycle, uh, the Battles Without Honor and Humanity series Proxy War, directed by Kenji Fukusaku. Written by uh, Kazuo Kasahara, off a concept by Koji Shundo, and an original story by Koichi Iabushi, starring Bunta Suigawa, Akira Kobayashi, Takeshi Kato, Mikio Narita, Kunye Tanaka, and Nubuo Kaneko, with the music by Toshiaka Tsushima, and narrated by, as always, Satoshi Tetsu Sakai. And that narrator voice is so good in these movies. He like, is great. It, it doesn't yeah. come up a whole lot, but when it does, that the use of uh, it going to the still images even in scenes that you think they should probably film, like, oh, this is an exciting scene, you're just showing still images, it, the, the narration just gives it this, like, gravity and makes it, it adds even more to the kind of the documentary film these these have with the loose camera work. Yeah. You know, it's, up close it, framing. It, it's so gritty and it's so ground and it's so gnarly and I just I just love that um, you'll get these, uh, you know, huge act breaks and, and, and you know, character, um, this, the information on characters and, and the plot progressions through, you know, still images and this, you know, ominous narrator telling you what's going on. Um, yeah, I guess with Proxy War, um, you know, it's uh, like the rest of the movies. It really just, it really hits the ground running. It's got a lot going on. Um, opening up with an assassination while, you know, you have these various Yakuza dudes just kind of palling around, getting lunch or what have you. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's 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 terrific. Um, it, it's a good intro. It's a good it's a shocking intro because you're kind of relaxing, like oh, it's kind of fun. You know, these guys are friends. You're introducing these characters through just a social situation, and then uh, one of them gets assassinated, and, and that kicks off the plot proper. Uh, kind of sort of uh, Thrasher. Did you have some initial thoughts of this third film in the Yakuza Paper series? Well, I was immediately struck by uh, the opening narration, which which establishes uh, sort of the proxy war in both microcosm and macrocosm, how due to both Russia and the United States as superpower trying to exert influence in the the Pacific theater and in Asia have inspired different nations to go to war on their behalf. And clearly, you know, they're making allusions to the Vietnam war, which Mm. would just get, which would just be getting started by the end of events in this movie, but was still going strong when the movie was made. And and I think, I think that that aura of Vietnam is very much uh, on this film. The other thing I noticed is unlike the other two films in the series that we've seen um, this film, most of its action is in the first half. It is very front loaded with action and then it's a lot of politics and a lot of tension building uh, up until the the titular proxy war uh, f- finally breaks out at the uh, in the final act. And yeah, there's um in the opening credits it it brings a lot of information into it, like the um, the public uh, assassination of um, uh, Inijiro uh, Masusana. He was the um, he was the head of the um, Socialist Party of Japan, and um, he was assassinated on live television by a uh, radical student member. And um, the, the the student protest movement in Japan at that time was 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 huge. And the um, the uh, treaties with the United States and Japan were were up for renegotiation. But at that time, 
because it had been so many years after the war, and they renewed the lease, so to speak, just to um, keep U.S. military installations in the event of um, in the event of a military struggle against another Asian power, which you know at this point could have been Korea or something else. So, like the political climate again in 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 Japan was just so tumultuous and so and so stormy. Again, it uh, provides a breeding ground for the for organized crime and, and the yakuza. And there's just a there's so many layers of politics and policies and 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 um, you know social reform going on in these in these movies, which is so, which is so potent and grounds the series all the much more, um, which you know endears them all the more. Right, and more so than the the last two films we've talked about, this really feels like half a movie. It, it has a lot of plot, a lot of characters, a lot of good things happen in here. But by the end, it feels like, uh, as it set up the next film, I felt like, oh, that's the one I I really want to see, because it ends yeah. on a on a hell of a cliffhanger. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, because after the success of the first film, um, the uh, <clears throat> the screenwriter Kasahara, you know, the studio was like, make more of these. So I think they ground out, you know, um, Deadly Fight in Hiroshima, and then um, Proxy War feels like the most sequel baity of the bunch. Oh, it ends with straight up sequel setup. Like it, oh, yeah. I believe it even says the great battle is, is about to begin or something exactly. along those lines. Like it's like they knew this was a big thing and now we're gonna milk it type deals. And um but it's a even so it it feels like in some ways it draws some stuff out, but it also it's got that very loaded feeling that all the other films have where there's all these like, you know, alliances and, and, and double crosses and stuff. And I guess I guess to bring it back to chronology, um it opens up with uh, Sugihara getting assassinated, and again you have someone wearing a uh, traditional, you know, garb getting yes. you know, shot down in the streets, and um, you know he was a successor to the Muraoka family, and then Uchimoto comes into the the foreground, and you know you can tell he's very much, um, you know, uh, he's very much a you know sowing the seeds of, of of discontent and making all these alliances and stuff with all these other guys and. It's funny because you see Hirono making these power plays, and he's very much on the outs of Yamamori from the first film, and yet he's kind of backing Uchimoto, even though he knows he's not the right guy for the position, but I just think he doesn't want to be allied with Yamamori that much. And then, you know, even though, um, you know, this little alliance breaks up because Uchimoto's using Hirono, and Hirono's using Uchimoto, and Yamamori's making all these power plays, and then meanwhile... You have the introduction to um, you have the introduction of uh, of uh, Takashi, the young kid, who who beats up the gets into this fight with the wrestler <laughs> in the first act, which is a great bit of business because uh, you get some dark comedy there and um, some 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 exciting scenes. And you kind of need that comedy, I think, starting out because this is a lot in one film. It gets very dark, uh, as you said, Thrasher, very political. And that you have this kind of business going on with this uh, professional wrestler. And it, and it really struck me. You you see still photographs of the wrestling match with the narration over it. And it's like any other director would have filmed the shit out of that wrestling scene. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it'd be a big, exciting thing. I mean, I'm thinking almost of uh, like like the professional wrestling match you get at the beginning of the first Highlander film. You know, it would have been shot very, you could shoot it very flashy. This just does it as still photographs. And it's like, telling the audience you're not here for the wrestling this wrestler is going to play something in the plot but this is a mafia story this is serious business going on it's all about context like it's not gonna any other film would waste time on a wrestling match yeah and, and be over the top with it and this although the the actor that that plays the wrestler and and, and the scenes i think are, are pretty good and pretty amusing it it just really that this it's a lot of uh, 20 pounds of uh, plot in a 10 pound bag. Yeah. And it's got to keep truck. It, it, this, this whole series, like none of the films are more than two hours, but they all feel like it could be a six hour mini series. It's crazy. Yeah. In, in like a 90 minute movie. It's, <laughs> it's over well, a lot I, of times. I love, uh, Every everything with that wrestler because like we're, we're introduced to him all, you know the the Yakuza are hanging out uh, in this like rec room b- backstage the yeah. at the arena where the professional wrestling matches are going on after that just really humanizing scene of hey let's celebrate your parole let's go to a wrestling show hey, it and, seems so normal at first right oh, yeah. 
and he, and he comes in and you know he's clearly he lost the match and he's kind of upset and everybody's upset because I'm sure yeah. they have money on him and whatnot. I'm like, hey, hey, you know, don't don't just take that defeat. You know, go go out there and and have a grudge match. Like I can't do that. That's that's <laughs> against the rules of the game. Yeah, uh, okay. Then they smash that bottle wait. over his head. There's blood everywhere. He's freaked the hell out. Like, hey, now you got a grudge. So yeah. get back out yeah. there. Yeah, that's and your motivation. He, <laughs> and he does. And what I love is. A beat after you see him go out the door, you hear the biggest cheer you've ever <laughs> heard come through the walls, which is completely what would happen. Oh, uh, yeah. If, 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 a, if a wrestler wrestling and that wrestler. happened, yeah. If I saw a bloodied wrestler come out from behind the curtain, I'd be like, hell yeah. Well, and, and think, think of how effective that is from you're, you're doing a, a low budget film uh, and you have to use your imagination. You have the sound design, you get the idea of what's happening, but kind of like when you're reading a comic book. You're imagining what goes on behind the panels. Oh uh, yeah, you, you also get this later in the film where there, the war, the battle is breaking out in the streets, and the camera is really close in on the guys in the back of a taxi cab. But you hear the gunshots and stuff, but it doesn't show all the all the, the squibs and people getting knocked over yeah. and stuff. But you, you you get the idea, you get the intensity, and I, that uh, there's a lot of implication in this film. There's also a lot of violence that you see in front, but, but stuff off camera too. And I think that's, it's just such an interesting choice. Well, speaking of the way that like the, the gang, the street level gang wars are filmed in this, uh, when, whenever those levels of intense street level violence happen, the film stock gets really, really grainy. And I think yeah, that's not yeah. just to be cheap because they're often filming in the rain. I think that's deliberate because in those moments, it looks just like the kind of footage you get when someone had an old uh, Super 8 camera on a battlefield. Yeah, and also, like, you know, the, this isn't, like, day-for-night shooting. They're, you can tell they're actually shooting at night. And the darker the exposure is, the, the more grainy the film stock becomes. And it's just, it, it, again, it really, um, it really enlivens the, 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 the uh, technical aesthetic of it. And it really gives you a, a documentary, um, like a very documentary verite feel uh, to the filmmaking, it's very fascinating. But what I love, though, is that when he when he when he smashes a bottle over the wrestler's head, you know, he's like, "Now you have a grudge." And he says, um, "We'll let you fuck Monsieur Shima after." <laughs> and it feels like something you'd see in like a Scorsese film, like when Joe Pesci cracks yeah. the restaurant owner's head. You know what I mean? Like, it's a it feels very conducive to the rest of the the like the the mafia uh, cinema as a whole. Well, but, but not just that. Shortly afterwards. It turns out the woman they promised was Miss Hiroshima is not her at all. No. So now you, now, now you get one of the underlings trying to find a woman on the street. Here, just just say you're Miss Hiroshima. Right. Come on, just drunk say, enough. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, he's... no, no, it's it's not even just a woman on a street. It's the yeah. it's the guy's it's, wife. Right. Exactly. He cut yeah. off his hand right. as an apology because he stole scrap metal from mm -hmm. his own operation. Because at this point, Hirona's got his own little you know ragtag family going on. And, you know, uh, what they say, he's like, he's, we tried to stop him, but he said a finger wasn't enough. And he ends up cutting off his whole hand, and you're just like, this guy is a fucking moron. <laughs> well, if, well recall in the first film, the guy's finger gets cut off, and mm -hmm. there's, they're like, you didn't have to do that. In this one, right. it's like a guy's whole hand. The yeah, stakes like, are, are up in this film. Well, the thing the thing I love about that guy is the the guy who cuts off his own hand to apologize to, to Hirono, he, he is such a dumbass. And he comes to hate Hirono, but every bad thing that's happened to him, he did to himself. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because he was stupid or too enthusiastic. Yeah. Uh, and, and Hirono, like, clearly Hirono is trying to look out for the guy, but the guy is so bad at being a Yakuza. And the other terrible. and the other thing that I love, I think the best bit of comedy uh, in this film is after after uh, Hirono confronts the guy after he cut off his hand and he takes one of his lieutenants aside to talk. That like all the new guys are in the background, they're wrapping up his hand in paper and taking it out to dispose of it. None of them want to do it, and they keep like passing it between them each other in the background. <laughs> and you keep thinking it's going to fall yeah. out of the bag. <laughs> And it's hilarious because he's like, you know, his reaction is kind of like, you know, like I like his reaction I would have as like a restaurant manager. Like if someone was like, oh, like, you know, I broke my foot in a back. Well, what, what good are you to me now? Like you can't work. You can't fight. You can't do anything. <laughs> he's like, great. You just went from incompetent to a one handed incompetent. Like you can't fight. Like <laughs> well, even when he says you can't like, how can you fight now? He's like, I got a weapon. And then he pulls out a pistol. He doesn't know how to use. <laughs> right, and then that kind of goes on to foreshadow the the, the, the fate of um, the poor the poor underling that gets taken in uh, Takashi Kuramoto. 
but but oh. that picture starts with, with some of the more lighter material i think is a very smart move kind of yeah easy eases you into this world and and also that time has passed these these different um yakuza families are, are more established they're they're yeah. better dressed than we last saw them there's more of uh the the sub bosses or the underlings or whatever they call them in this picture the- they got more fun money to pass around. That's yeah. yeah, they're richer. Yeah, yeah, they they're there's more flashy. A lot, there's yeah. a lot more of them just generally celebrating and living the high life in mm-hmm. this movie. Yeah, and I think it's um you see these guys they're they're they've gone from you know they're they've gone from gambling dens and and scrapyards and and um you know prostitution to you know organizations and corporations. That's why the the Shinwa, you know, um, corporation presided over by uh, Tetsuro Tanba's character is such a big deal. And you see the legitimization of organized crime and, you know, Japanese culture kind of, you know, connecting together. And it's a little freaky how powerful they become. And um, it's it also, you know, really instigates the what would we be called in the film a proxy war. Um you know the the stakes almost become become more upped because it's about money and power than it is a reputation and um, honor. All right, so uh, I have praised uh, the violence uh, and sort of the frank nature of the violence in the in these movies and, and the way dismemberment and things are, are depicted. There's a particularly the wrestler at one point. Uh, when we first see uh, when we first see Takeshi, he he gets into a knife fight with the wrestler and ends up cutting off his ear. And yeah. it's just a grisly shot of the ear mm-hmm. in a pool of blood in the rain. This is the first film in the series where I have seen a visual effect that that not only underwhelmed me, I felt was outright bad, which they could have saved in editing, but for whatever reason didn't. Uh, because about halfway through, uh, a finger is cut off as an apology, legitimately this time. Yeah, and it's sent to Hirono in like a little, a little like jar of alcohol, a jar of like preserved. sterile water or something. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, and, and you see, and you see the finger, and the camera lingers on the finger just long enough that you can see the casting seam on yeah. the rubber finger. Mm-hmm. I know. Like, yeah. If it had cut away half a second sooner we wouldn't see that, but because they linger, it is all we can see. And, and I, that strangely enough, that took me by, that was the biggest surprise for me in the movie was right. that that wasn't cut around. <laughs> sure. I think I was so accustomed to that seat. I didn't, I didn't uh, look very close, but I did notice it after, you know, a few rewatches over the years. Um, it did stand out to me because I was so used to in Yakuza film, seeing the ceremonial cloth with the finger with a little pool of blood, you know, um, so seeing in the jar, I'm like, that's, that's different. That's creepy. And then you see the little, I guess, a little seam around it. Um, but yeah, there, uh, you see a lot of, um, I think this one is probably the most complicated in the series. You have a lot of, uh, sworn brotherships, you know, happening and then being broken up and then being reestablished. And I think the best analogy with these is that, you know, like a sworn brother is like being a made man almost. Right. In that, you know, I'm a sworn brother of Maroka, I'm a sworn brother of, of, you know, Matsunaga, yada, yada, yada. And, um, but like the power structure in this movie is so complex with, you know, Uchimoto um, jockeying for power in his very greedy, goofy way, Hirono making some mistakes in regards to Yamamori and Yamamori being a guarantor of Hirono's parole. And, um, it's a it's a very complicated film and it's very talky, but I always felt like it was engaging. Did you guys feel like it was ever too talky at any points? I never felt it was too talky, although I will admit I tend to like talky movies and and talky fiction. I I love it when characters are given time to discuss their plans, their emotions, their ideals, and and this movie certainly has a lot of it. Yeah. I, I never thought it was too talky. There is, like you said, I think a lot of characters, not just that, the relationship between them and the different families and what's the hierarchy. And, and there's a lot of uh, like double, triple, and quadruple crosses and so forth in, in this picture. I, I think that part gets confusing, but these are movies that are made to be watched more than once. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think like, like a, I don't know, like revisiting a seven-course meal 
the more you do it, the more you appreciate and you get different, it's a slightly different experience each time, I think, is with uh, any good piece of art or food, because I love food metaphors. And speaking of meals, this is yes. this movie made me so hungry. Oh, yeah. We see with, so many amazing which, hot pot dishes. We see mm-hmm. so many, oh, just so many shabu, shabu. pornographic shots of, 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 of tumblers with freshly chipped ice in it slowly filling with whiskey oh so good that seems to yeah. be something with japanese cinema and anime in anime general especially yeah yeah i don't um, know what it is but it's always very affecting the, the fetishization of food and, and also lately in some of the video games final fantasy 15 and kingdom hearts 3 have these way too elaborate modes where you can make your own food dishes and they have these <laughs> realistically like 4k rendered uh, meals that all they do is they like, give you extra hit points or something. And, and you know, speed I, bonus. I played one of the Monster Hunter games and it was the same way. There's this You're elaborate right, yeah. piece yep. of animation where these cat people will cook a monster <laughs> you carried. Yeah, and yeah. then you get this gorgeously rendered gourmet meal. <laughs> and it's like, this is a, a, a this meal is just an item in the game I'm going to consume within like two seconds. Like <laughs> There has to be some reason for that fascination and i'm not quite sure what it is but if you like japanese food please watch the documentary jiro dreams of sushi from a decade ago yes. that's that, that's an excellent piece of work as is the spoof from documentary now uh, i think it's like juan dreams of chicken and rice or something <laughs> with, uh, i gotta check that out with uh, fred armison Net, uh, netflix in the united states has the documentary now seasons one through three it's an amazing show uh, especially if you watch a lot of documentaries, but back to our discussion of battles without honor and humanity, proxy war, or in Japanese, I'll mispronounce this, Jinki Naki Tatakai Dairi Senso. That sounded pretty good. Yeah, um, okay. How would you guys feel about the the, the introduction of um, Takashi Kuramoto after he mutilates the wrestler and becomes indoctrinated into the uh, Yakuza family, of uh, Hirono's family? I, I really enjoyed watching his arc. I, I really did I, I really did feel something when you know when he's he when his mother is explaining to Hirono, you know, that he's the son of a, of a guy who is in the Yakuza and how he yep. yes, he's a punk kid and yes, that is largely her fault, but this is probably the life for him and she's willing right. to sort of let him go and accept that. And one of the things that I love is that like Hirano does want him to be a man and Hirano does want him to have a code and I love it like when his mom's getting ready to leave he slaps uh, Whacks him. slaps him on yeah. the back of the head and says you turn your mother's sandals around you help her <laughs> on with her sandals you say goodbye and and he does and I like that there's a little payoff later because uh, when he's doing some 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 lookout duty for, for a, a, a Yakuza meeting uh, turns out his mother works on a road crew filling in potholes. And it's like, oh hi, mom. Oh hi, son. Hey, uh, check this out. And he's he's got like I think a package of like Paul Malls. Yeah, Paul like, Here, Malls yeah. American yeah. cigarettes. American oh cigarettes. really? And she's so excited. And even then, like you see, he wants to provide for. Her. He says, you know what? Here, keep the pack. You give this to your co. You share this with your coworkers. <laughs> it's very sweet, and um, it really does remind me. Um. Because I think I really, that's one of the, I think since we started recording these, I've always latched on to Proxy War and Deadly Fight in Hiroshima as my favorite. Because I love the, the the narratives of Yamanaka and Takashi in these movies. And um, I love the, the, the narrative where, like you said, he, he sees his mother later on. He's like, hey, how you doing? He's like, oh, I got these American cigarettes and I'm doing good. And you see this kind of his ascension in that you can see he's very much of, um, he looks at Hirono as like a fatherly figure. You know, you see him, um, he's running errands with him. He's probably his driver. He's definitely, like, muscle for him when he's meeting with other, you know, sworn brothers and or um, underbosses of other rival families and stuff. So it kind of reminds you of, like, Christopher Moltisanti and, like, The Sopranos or something like that, mm-hmm. where you have, like, you know, an idealistic youngster who is, who is very pumped to be, um, you know, part of this organized crime family without knowing the, you know, horrible shit that goes on. <laughs> um that goes yeah, on within it. Yeah, I was reminded a bit of the character from uh, the first two Godfather films, Fredo. Mm-hmm. In that he seems like he just doesn't quite fit in there. He shouldn't be in there. And he, he, he he's, it's like a puppy, right? Like, he's nice, he's cute, but he shits all over the place. Right, and exactly. d- Despite his best intentions, uh, it's not it's perhaps not what he should be doing, but 
that that we get to see a character at this point in in the history of the yakuza in in this i hate to say cinematic universe but whatever i just said yeah. it Everything right in in this series it um, yeah it, it, it's it's a character that's kind of an audience surrogate it's like wow what if i would have been a gangster at this point in right. time and how different is that with the formality of the structure compared to in the very first film where they're all just a bunch of these street punks like trying to stab each other in the alleyways yeah. like it's more rough and tumble now it's more formalized it's more westernized no definitely uh, more westernized, right yeah. and and to see that evolve it's it, it's not quite a character arc it's almost like a i don't know like a mafia like structure arc it, it's quite weird but to see that growth see that evolution yeah, I think the um, first film in this one is 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 uh, interesting. I think the thing too is that like if you look at Fukusaku's um, career prior to the Yakuza papers, like he was doing a lot of. Um, I had watched uh, in the past week this this film called Bloodstained uh, Gang Honor, and it was very much um, in the same style of the Yakuza papers and um, street mobster and sympathy for the underdog. Other Fukusaka films. They have a very rough-hewn, street-born, you know, rip-your-head-off style of violence, but they don't have this kind of articulate um, infrastructure of, of, of organized crime. And I think that comes in the Yakuza papers because so much of it was closely written with dudes who had correspondence with actual Yakuza. Um, the screenwriter... Um, ba -ba -da -ba -da. Uh, Kazahara wrote it in tandem with a dude who was actually imprisoned at Abashiri Prison, which was like the Alcatraz of Japan at the time. Mm. And um, so, like, basically, like the Yamagura Gumi family was translated to the Yamamori family, and like the Minogumi family was the Hirono family, the uh, Sochioka Gumi family was the Doi family. So, like, Fukusaka at this point is like drawing very literally from from annals of, of Japanese uh, Yakuza lore. And I think that's where that very intricate uh, structure comes from. Um, so it's a it's kind of like a perfect marriage of, of, of two of two themes. And that's why it really flourishes here in the Yakuza papers. Well, it's almost that, that reinforced the themes of a, a proxy war and being a, a pawn in the larger game. And as Matt mentioned, is the Western influence that as as these people get more get more powerful and wealthier, their fashions become more Western, their vices become more Western. Yep. They have yeah. European whiskey, uh, as, as we mentioned, you know, the palm oil cigarettes, and and of course the 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 elders and the people at the very tip top still cosplay as if they were samurai in feudal Japan with their robes and their fans yep. and everything fancy, and. And anytime they try to play to their elders, it's always using something old-fashioned, whether it's meeting in that very sort of traditional dining hall where you sit on the floor and there's all the paper walls, mm -hmm. or 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 when they uh when at, in the middle of that meeting they bring in they bring in the geishas, and of course they play. Although oh, no, these are just girls from the nightclub, we just <laughs> dressed them up. There, there's nothing fancy about them. Yeah, but like, but it just it. It play it plays up to their to their their need. Uh, what I'm sure they think of as a need for tradition, but really is more of a fetishizing of of the old traditions. Yeah, and it's something. It's kind of a through line through mafia, um, I guess, cinema and shows. Like you see in The Sopranos, so the the aping of like Italian culture was almost just kind of like a, you know, it was almost like you said, it was very vulgar and fetishized. You know, and that no one really respected it or honored it. And um, with the Yakuza papers, it's fascinating because the uh, jockeying for power is so convoluted that, you know, like the level of commitment in the writing of the screenplay, I realized it was like almost analogous to like a like you usually don't see such an intricate structure in something that's not like fantasy or sci fi mm. or you know game of thrones or yeah you expect right. this kind of level of intricacy in in like a jr tolkien thing not a rip your head off type gangster flick you well know. takeshi is no quizats hatterack i can tell you that there you go <laughs> but that's what's so interesting is that um is that you have all these like crossing alliances and like i said even though i've watched these films you know countless times before i'm still kind of pausing them here and there and be like, oh, okay, yeah, this is where so-and-so betrays so-and-so. And, you know, um, 
It's almost a uh, Shakespearean or um, mm-hmm. or even like a Greek tragedy in so many ways that you have all these like levels of betrayal. Um, you know, you have underbosses betraying underlings and using other guys like the I forget the dude's name, the, the guy who cuts his hand off um, becomes a huge player in um, manipulating uh, Takashi Kuramoto. And against, like, um, staging the assassination with Makihara, who, you know, had an assassination plot against Hirono, and then this whole thing, like, that could be its own movie, you know? <laughs> and it's it's very intricate and very mind-blowing, and, um, like you said, it, it merits many rewatches. Sure, and, I mean, you, you have so much going on, it, it shows a real trust in the audience that you'll be able to follow this story, or at least follow it well enough to get some satisfaction out of the narrative. I, I think of how much that's, that's changed over the years. I, I was re, uh, re-watching the old uh, miniseries uh, Shogun, based oh, on yeah, the James Clavel novel. Yeah. It, and there's a part with the, the subtitles that makes me laugh my ass off every time. It's not supposed to be funny, but it's gearing up to this big battle near the end of the show. And it shows, it shows one of the armies running out of the castle... And it says, this is the, I'll, I'll make up the name, I don't know what it is. This is like the Fugihara family. In parentheses, it says the Browns, because they have brown-colored armor. And then it says, <laughs> this is the Shugawashi family, parentheses, the Reds. It's like, wow, they have to just say the color for people that don't have the color quite coding. get yeah. what side it is which. It's like a football match. I want the brown team, I want the red team. Yeah, exactly. But, but that, they did that in a, in a miniseries. That is, um, I forget if it's like 1980 or perhaps the late 70s or something, uh, with Richard Chamberlain is is uh, and Toshiro Mifune, of course, is in that. Yeah, um, is really quite something. And this is a film from like, you know, over a decade or less than a decade before that that has all this complicated narrative things going on and doesn't have to spell it out so bluntly for the audience. But of course, it's a Japanese film made for Japanese audiences. Yeah, and, like, I think the, the you know, the intricate plot structure, though, but, like, even though it was, you know, a Japanese film made for Japanese audiences, um, I know I'd gone on about this ad nauseum before, but, like, you know, the older Yakuza flicks were very, they were great, but they were very cut and dry. They had this very, you know, strict code of honor and stuff like that. And, um, you know, like I said before, it was, like, going from John Ford to Sergio Leone. It was, um, you know... Very much a revisionist thing, and Proxy War, I think, is just, um, like you said, or like we were discussing earlier, that you have um, a a self-aware screenwriter making a film with a sequel in mind, and he's planting all these seeds with, um, I believe, uh, Takeda, the the glasses guy who was in the hospital, and then with um, Ada, the guy who was in prison and recently gets out, and then, um, I gotta look at my notes here, um... Uh, the the gentleman who is um, uh, Mat, uh, uh, Matsunaga, the guy who is with um, Hirono and Sugihara when Sugihara gets assassinated, you have such a diverse plethora of of characters um, intertwining with corporations and stuff like that, just to kind of see where this little grenade you know explodes into you know all the directions that this is going to go into, and it's it's endlessly fascinating and. Um, and even though I think, um, well, I know I asked you guys earlier if you thought it was talky, and it, while it is talky, it's fascinating. But the um, culminating action in it is also very enthralling, and like the big showdown towards the end of the proxy wars, I think, is um, one of the best stage incidents in the Yakuza paper series with the the uh, assassination attempt of Hirono, and then the repercussion that happens on um, Takashi Kuramoto who's trying to avenge Hirono's assassination attempt. And it's a very fascinating um, um, structure and the way it happens. So, more so than Takeshi's eventual death, his funeral is an intense scene that really took it out of Mm. him. At the end, yeah. Yeah, where you know we see we see that he's been cremated and uh, and Hirono and and uh, a figure who I I think is off camera uh, is are picking picking what remains of his bones from the crematorium and putting them into an urn that his mother is holding and just in like a final act of dishonor as they're leaving as they're leaving the the funeral parlor uh, 
a bunch of punks from a rival gang come by and shoot them all up and the urn gets dropped the urn gets run over by a car the pieces scatter everywhere and Hirano tries to help gather those pieces up but like any but since they're fresh from the crematorium anytime someone touches them they get burned and yeah they're and so hot Hirano just picks up a chunk of thigh bone and crushes it in his in his hand just feeling that heat burn along with his with his hatred that that level of brutality that abuse of human remains was something that i was not expecting yeah that was like i think i cried the first time Mm -hmm. i saw it because i just was because i think coming off of the second film with the yamanaka suicide which is which is a very potent scene um and then you go into another film with another, um, you know, idealistic youngster um, meeting such an unfortunate fate. And then you see his, his, his funeral, funerary uh, moments just, you know, desecrate in the worst possible way. And then, you know, with the mother, like, you know, bemoaning, you know, the, the, the ceremony and then Hirono grabbing the, the bone. And it's very evocative and very and just very wrenching and... Um, and the thing is, is that, like, you know, you could have made a slam-bang, kick-ass gangster movie without that. You know, you didn't need the the emotional gut punch, but uh, Fukusaka went for that because I think he um, he felt very passionate about capturing the disparity of the post-war climate in Japan. And I think moments like that really encapsulate how, how, how dire the circumstances were. Well, and it's and that moment is even punctuated by narration, narration which would be ham-fisted in any other film, right. where the narrator just kind of lays it all out. In these grand conflicts, the first to die are the are the fit young men, and nobody cares, and nobody memorializes no them, and nobody yep. honors them in their demise. They're yep. just grist for the mill. Right? Yeah, they're just you know nameless you know pawns in this great scheme. And um, it almost feels like a more elaborated version of what we would see in Deadly Fight in Hiroshima with the Yamanaka thread. Um, whereas here, Takashi is less prominent than Yamanaka. He's kind of like, you know, a supporting character. You see him in the background and you see him helping out. Um, but there's just so much going on in the main thread that, you know, it's not as pronounced. But it's equally fascinating and... I think I had hinted at this earlier with the first and second movies that Makahara, um, the underboss of the Yamamori family, is just the biggest piece of shit ever. <laughs> and you can see him making phone calls and, 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 you know, he's basically the reason why Takashi gets whacked in the first place. And he's just such a weasley bastard. What did you guys think of the Makahara character in this one? Mm. Matt? Yes. Um, it just just weaselly he's always in the background he's always scheming uh, reminded a bit i mean you mentioned tolkien earlier of um the character of warm tongue in the in the lord of the rings <laughs> yes just the same he's whispering bullshit and the guy and his he's a toady right he's he's yeah. ultimately just cares about himself he's playing both sides against the other and uh, it makes for for a good antagonist um the end of this film you know you you see they set up it's the funeral and you expect something, it's going to go out in a soft note, and then you're surprised by the punks that show up. I, I was reminded of a, uh, a James Bond film, Honor and Majesty's Secret, Secret Service. Service. Yes. Yeah, where at the end you think, oh, James Bond's getting married to a woman that he loves, and then she gets assassinated immediately by Blofeld, as played yep. by Telly Savalas. And that also happens like, at the climax of the film. It, it, it really throws you for a loop, because you settle in, you're expecting one thing, and then all of a sudden it flips the genre at the exact moment you think, okay, it's time for end credits. I can uh, yeah. pick up my popcorn and then, uh, and go home. Yeah. And like, uh, the same thing with James Bond with, uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. You don't expect that gut punch in a, in a genre film like that. You're like, Oh my God, time enough at last, you know? Um, and, and speaking of that Honor Majesty's Secret Service, the director, uh, oh, his first name was Peter, I believe. Peter um, Hunt. Yeah. Thank you, Hunt. He was he edited a lot of the earlier Bond films. Uh, he mentioned he thought that segment should have been used as the start of the next James Bond film. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. but I don't know if that would have worked either. 
you go to a James Bond film and it starts with James Bond getting married. That's kind of lame. Even if the wife gets killed. Yeah, James Bond yeah. is an action opener. Yeah, yeah. An action. Well, they all start in media res with the tail end of yes. another adventure. And what greater adventure is there than marriage? Yeah. <laughs> it's not a James Bond adventure, though, is it? Well, I suppose not. No. Depends. Uh, um, yes. Um, uh, that just makes me angry that I can't see the new James Bond film. I I know, yeah, and I really like Rami Malek, too. Yep, but it, it'll come out one way or another. One way or another, indeed. Um, there's um, a lot going on here, um, and I also like the inclusion of uh, Tetsuro Tamba as... Um, Yeah. Head the uh, head of the Akashi family. Uh, Tetsuro Tambo was a big star in Japanese cinema. He was in um, yeah, Lost Samurai. He was in a few um, Fukusaku films under the flag of the Rising Sun. Um, uh, Kwaidon. Um, Speaking of James Bond, he was Tiger Tanaka in You Only Live Twice. That's right. Yeah, he definitely was. Um, he's a big actor. He also acted in China with a big uh, Chang-Chi film, um, Water Margin. So Tessera Tamba is like a big, larger-than-life actor, and he's doing his stoic thing in this film. But again, it's it's very strange is that, like, like with the last movie, you have Sonny Chiba and Miko Kaji, and they're, like, again, these, they're playing these very restrained forms of themselves. So seeing Tetsuro Tamba in this movie is like, holy shit, it's this big, larger-than-life actor. And he's like, you know, very, you know... Um, Place it, playing it close to the chest type of dude. Um, but it's also emblematic of um, the Yakuza culture being integrated with business culture so much. And like I was saying earlier, they're out of the gambling dens and they're out of the prostitution halls and they're, you know, heads of companies. And um, this film's a really great representation of the ascension that organized crime was taking in Japan at the time. It's not that far from the truth. I mean, a lot of these scripts were written in in, in uh, correspondence with dudes who were actual active gang members. Uh, another big role of Tetsuro Tamba is uh, he, he did a voice of the titular character in a film from Studio Ghibli, not directed by Miyazaki. It was directed by Hiroyuki Morita. The Cat Returns, he did the voice of the Cat King. Oh wow! And and the guy, the actor that did the voice in the American version, Tim Curry. No shit! Wow. Yeah, Curry is incredible. And that so never had, you know. This is, I think, uh, Disney got the rights at the time to yeah. the Miyazaki films and put money into getting an all-star voice cast. So, I've never seen that film, but I, I, I should probably because of the Tim Curry connection, even though it's not. It, even though it's one of the rare Studio Ghibli's that is not uh, directed by uh, Miyazaki. Well, maybe future um, sequel cast to episode sure. could be Whisper of the Heart and The Cat Returns because it's a duology. Oh, oh I didn't I know that. So. Okay. There we go. Yep. And, and you could also do a, a sequel cast thing on Grave of the Fireflies, which had two live action remakes. I cannot Ooh. imagine watching that story in live action form. <laughs> Painful. Um, Painful indeed. Okay, so Thrasher, I mean, we, we've talked a lot about Proxy Word. Do you have any last thoughts on it? Uh, no, only this has for me a resounding sequel, yes. Normally, yeah. a, a sequel setup is an immediate turnoff for me. Uh, it can tank my opinion of a movie. This <laughs> is one of the rare exceptions. I cannot wait to see what happens next. Fantastic. Alex? Oh, definite sequel, yes, and I have to... I have to take a moment to really say that I am so glad you guys enjoy these movies because, you know, if we embarked on a five film series that you guys hated, you know, that would kind of suck. But I am overjoyed that y'all are enjoying them so much. And, um, you know, that's the part of the magic of movies and movie podcasts is sharing something you love with other like minded individuals. So oh, no, thank you. We love having you on here, Alex. Anytime yeah. you want to, you're invited, of course. Um, oh. Yeah, no, no, no. Oh. Proxy War. Uh, it's quite good. This is more my speed than the movie we uh, talked about last week, Hiroshima Deathmatch. I thought it was more of a drama. I think I need to watch more of that uh, when I'm in a better mood. Um, I don't know what it was. It didn't quite stick with me. This one is kind of more what I was expecting. 
And that ending, I don't know if that's a great ending scene, but it's a good last shot that in his fist, the crumbled bones and the and the ash and uh, all that stuff in, in the, the fire in his eyes, it it's, uh, mirrors the ending of the first film, I think, in the mm-hmm. series, in which he's doing something badass. He's just like, don't fuck with me. Like, you know, something's going to happen. Yeah. And then it ends. And so it's like the big anticipation. Right. So, and I think the so, thing, too, is that um, I think if you wanted to, you could take um, Deadly Fight in Hiroshima out of the equation, put Proxy War as a second film. And yes. it would probably work just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, over the years, I've revisited these movies um, a lot. And it's usually been the first three. While Police Tactics in the final episode are great, I just haven't seen them longer. So I'm, I'm eagerly mm-hmm. anticipating watching them in, in preparation for our future episodes. Oh, no, very good. Um, all right, so let's do a uh, pitch a sequel. I'll, I'll begin. You have the ending of this where uh, Hirono is uh, swearing vengeance. He's, he's mad. And, and as, he, as he crumbles the bones in his hands what comes to life but a ghost of his ancestor from samurai times and he nope. is sucked into a portal into samurai times <laughs> and a gangster a yakuza member from uh 1960s japan has to teach an old uh samurai relative what it means to be a, a good man and it would be sort of a kind of like a fish out of water comedy you'd have some of that humor i think you'd have some some good scenes you know a, a bit of romance and at the end uh, you would you would have a shot it'd be a hirono would be have this you know hot-blooded speech about what he's learned about being a man in modern japan and what he's learned about being a man in medieval japan and he, he's going to come to some climactic thought and then he is sucked through the portal into uh, modern day, into a uh, you know 1960s Japan, where we left off at the end of Proxy War, and uh, he's holding the ash in his hands, and it's it's uh, flowing in between his fingers, and he can't remember where he just was, where he's where he's going, and so this would be a, a time travel story of of no consequence. Maybe it's a hallucination. I think he'd play <laughs> with, with, uh, with some <laughs> some of those angles, and it would be. Uh, it would be uh, Battles Without Honor and Humanity Zero is, <laughs> is, is the title. Yes. Thrasher. All right. I also want to do something more comedic, but not involving time travel. So I, I've noticed in all these movies, the Yakuza create so much trouble for various local businesses. So what I want to do is a comedy of errors that runs parallel to the entire film series about just a nice guy living in post-war Japan who wants to who wants to start a little eatery that maybe serves some sake and Every one of his business ventures, it's all these humorous vignettes that always, or that typically end with his business venture getting trashed in a Yakuza gang war. (laughs) Uh, And and we will come to find out that this guy, like whenever you see a bewildered bartender or noodle slinger in the background of a scene, it's always been this guy. Oh, okay. He was running the little roadside place where where Takeshi stabs the wrestler. Um, He... (laughs) Runs the hot pot shop. He was running the place where they had the power blackout. Like that was his biggest restaurant yet. Um, but inevitably, he keeps getting bigger and bigger restaurants because <laughs> the yakuza keeps either trying to use his businesses to launder money, or they <laughs> or they keep giving him money to not go to the police to report their various crimes. Either so, way, he's got an empire going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So despite the fact that he barely ever serves legitimate customers he is always inexplicably making money and always trying to keep a lid on the yakuza shit so that his businesses don't get wrecked so it's rosencrantz and gildenstern are dead meet god of cookery meets uh, battles without honor and humanity yes we're gonna call it platters without honor and humanity <laughs> very good okay and alex which a sequel all right so in this world, after Proxy War, you've got all these Yakuza bosses ascending to power and, and mm-hmm. becoming more and more legitimate. So uh, Yamamori's power 
in the Shinma group, um, they also align with the Akashi gang. And what they do is that they gradually pay off um, officials in the police force to the point where they actually own the Japanese police department within the Kure City prefecture. So Yamamori becomes the head of the deputy ops. Now what he needs is a lead detective. And who else better than one and only Shoza Hirono? They don't like each other. However, Hirono gets results. He plays by his own rules. And he's a renegade. Not the best thing in the world, but Yamamori knows it. And he knows that Hirono will get results. So what happens is that Hirono becomes a renegade, take no prisoners cop, under the rule of the tyrannical Yamamori. And this is called Dirty Hirono. <laughs> the Yamamori Files, Chapter 1. Very, very good. So now it's time for a question... What you're watching. Uh, so, Alex, what you're watching? Right. Watching. Um, well, I did watch the um, bloody um, uh, uh, gang honor, which was a Kenji yeah. Fukunaga film. Uh, I just talked about that in the last series. Um, then recently, with the passing of Stuart Gordon, rewatching um, Reanimator, and then for the first time, Castle Freak, mm-hmm. which was a pretty wild flick. Um, much more mature than I ever expected and much more gritty than I would have anticipated for a direct-to-video film. And then recently, I um, actually watched a um, artsy-fartsy film, um, uh, Sergei Bondarchuk's War and Peace, 1964 flick. Um, really blew me away, and it's a very epic, beautiful film, but it's also got this very like hallucinogenic, lysergic stylistic influence that's very conducive with the mid 60s it's a wild it's a wild movie um it's very long and challenging but it's definitely worth it i would highly recommend it even if you don't think you would like something like war and peace it's a very fascinating movie very good um thrasher i i am trying to find some of the most obscure offerings that disney plus has and (laughs) i was delighted to find a Disney-produced TV movie adaptation of the 1960s Broadway musical Once Upon a Mattress. <laughs> oh, that, that is quite the find. Okay. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Is... 1950s Broadway musical. Yes. Who, who stars in this, in this version? All right, so it, it is starring... Okay, so across the board, everyone cast in this movie is at minimum 10 years older than they should be. That being said... Uh, it stars Carol Burnett as the Wicked Queen Agravain, uh, and that's some brilliant casting because Carol Burnett's first major role was as Princess Winifred in the original stage production. So that's a pretty good turn for her. Tracy Ullman plays Princess Winifred, and despite being way too old for the part, she is fantastic. Uh, Dennis O'Hare plays Prince Dauntless. Zoe Dachanel plays Lady Larkin. Uh, I didn't. Even, I didn't recognize her at first. Mm. Uh, another great. Uh, two other great bits of care. Uh, bit of casting is Tom Tommy Smothers from the Smothers Brothers plays nice. King Sextimus, and okay. the Wizard is played by Edward Hibbert. Hmm. And That's have you seen this show either as a movie or on stage before? I I have heard I have heard songs from it. Uh, one of mm-hmm. my I believe my cousin Mary or Sarah had the soundtrack, so this was the first time I and I was familiar with the story of it because it's all, it's all based on the the old Hans Christian Andersen story, the Princess and the Pea, but taken to comical extre- extremes. And this is a horny movie, a horny movie, horny musical and horny movie, <laughs> a horny Disney m- uh, musical, live action musical. Oh yeah, no, it's very sort of Freudian and psychosexual, but that's but that's like the whole the whole the whole deal is that the the queen uh, the Prince Dauntless is a real mama's boy, and his queen kind of dominates him and keeps him dependent, and has and insists that he can't marry a princess unless she can pass some sort of test. But the tests are designed to be so precise that no one could ever possibly pass them so princess winifred who's this uh, uncouth princess from a swamp kingdom shows up and so the bullshit test is she has to sleep on top of 20 mattresses and if she can feel a pee underneath the mattresses she is delicate enough to to marry the prince uh the catch is 
the queen has also made it a law that no one can get married before her son. And the knight, uh, Sir Harry, here played by Matthew Morrison, uh, got Lady Larkin, played by Zoe Deschanel, pregnant. So they need to find a way to make somebody pass the test so that they can get married before she starts to show. <laughs> and you come to find out they cheat. They eventually find out what the plan is, and so they hide a bunch of armor and weapons between the mattresses <laughs> so Fred, so Princess Winifred can't get to sleep. Uh, but it's really, it's really delightful. Oh, there's even a song. So the king is under a curse, so he can't speak. So there's a, a scene... Uh, a musical scene where Prince Dauntless comes to him to have the father-son chat about sex. And it's all him using <laughs> pantomime to try to explain to his son how babies are made. <laughs> that sounds incredible. It really, it really is delightful. I recommend checking it out. It was made, this, this particular made-for-TV movie, which I think is the third made-for-TV movie, mm. Uh, yeah, because there was one done in the 60s, one done in the 70s. Yeah. This was done in 2005 for The Wonderful World of Disney in its last season. I watched um, a few weeks ago the um, American Experience documentary about Walt Disney. Uh, that was made, I think, in 2015. Yeah, And I have to say it was incredibly fascinating, just the, the humble beginnings of Walt Disney and you know the, the creation of the studio and everything. But what I found incredibly interesting was that um during a period of like uh of, of creative um i guess writer's block if you want to call it that um walt disney was like riding around on like life-size trains and stuff and he didn't really have anything going for himself it was salvatore dolly that came over and said um he goes like oh i see what you're doing you're not actually creating but you're building a world and that's mm. what that's what um, gave him the. In, that's what instigated him to create Disney World or Disneyland. Um, it was it was a really fascinating experience, and also, I think it's interesting that a lot of people note that um, for a long time, someone who was interested in creating children's entertainment, it was um, back then. You know, it wasn't instantly criminalized. Hmm. Oh, have you? Have either of you seen uh, Destino, the short film collaboration between Walt Disney and Salvador Dali? No, no, no. No, it was meant to be a Fantasia segment, I believe, and they put it as a. They animated it, I think, as an extra on one of the DVDs. Well, well, originally they like it, they worked on it for several years, but in the end, before uh, like by the time like before by the time Walt Disney had died, only about ten seconds had been animated, and that ten seconds would often show up in a lot of documentaries about un, about lost Disney projects. Right. But a few years ago. The Disney Animation Studios uh, unearthed, uh, dug up the storyboards, uh, and went ahead and just completed the entire film. And it's about it's about maybe five to seven minutes uh, set to this wonderfully grainy recording of this uh, uh, Italian song Destino. It's very much worth seeing. The animation is amazing, and the surrealistic imagery is is so intriguing. That's very cool. Yeah, I've never seen it. I've heard of that clip. Off to dig it up. Um... I've been watching a, it seems like it's a one-off miniseries. I don't know. They've only aired half of it. It's on FX, and it's also available on Hulu, because now that Disney owns everything, meaning Hulu and uh, yep. Disney and FX and Fox and all that stuff. It's uh, called Devs, uh, written and directed by Alex Garland, who oh. is uh, you know, known for directing movies like uh, Ex Machina, which I really liked. Annihilation, I've never seen, but I heard that's a good one. Annihilation's terrific, yeah. With Natalie Portman. And he, um, not only did he write some pictures like 28 Days Later and uh, the the Judge Dredd movie from almost a decade ago, he uh, kind of started his career as a novelist writing The Beach, which was made into a Danny Boyle film uh, with yep. Leonardo DiCaprio. So... All that being said, Devs, it's a good, it's a real slow burn. Um, if you wouldn't have told me it was Alex Garland, I would have thought it was by, uh, I can't pronounce his name, um, Denis Villeneuve, the the guy who did Blade Runner. Oh, yeah, Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. Because um, it, it's very slow, very deliberately paced. It, it's frankly kind of a soap opera set at a um, top secret kind of a DevOps IT facility you really can't talk about it much without spoiling it. Kind of a yeah. elements of a murder I, mystery, a lot of um, P 
people psyching a lot of mind games, people psyching each other out, a lot of kind of conspiracy uh, theory stuff going on. But I've um, I've watched half of it. I think only four episodes are available at the moment. But it's well done, very deliberately paced. Uh, Nick Offerman plays a, a dramatic role, which I still have yeah. a hard time uh, swallowing him <laughs> in the role, but he's good. But just to see an actor who, who did all the sitcoms and stuff, like yeah. crying and being um, <laughs> serious is, is um, it takes a bit getting used to, but I, I like it. It's, it's good. It's, it's very pretty. It's uh, and uh, one of my coworkers says it's actually pretty accurate with how it describes quantum computing. Oh, cool. Yeah. I've, I've heard rave things about it. I've actually been meaning to check it out and I'm a huge fan of um, annihilation, especially. And there's things about um, ex machina. I do enjoy a lot, but Annihilation's a terrific film, and to go back to the Stuart Gordon conversation, it's probably one of the best examples of cosmic horror. Even cosmic horror not connected to to H.P. Lovecraft, it's a it's a terrific movie. I would highly recommend anyone who's a fan of original um, sci-fi or, or cosmic horror to check it out. Yeah, I mean, I was um, reading a uh, recent biography on H.P. Lovecraft, and it got me thinking. Why hasn't anyone tried to do like an anthology series just adapting H.P. Lovecraft short stories? Yeah, I think um, since they're such yeah. high concept, I think it's mm-hmm. uh, I think it's hard to do. Maybe I don't know. Sure, no, it, I mean it is. It, it, it you know he describes the monsters as like being so terrible you can't describe what they look like. Uh, most of the stories end with people killing themselves or going insane. Uh, but. Did any guys see uh, Color Out of Space, the Richard Stanley movie? Not yet, but I am desperate to see that. Okay, yeah. All right. I don't want to spoil it for you. Mm-hmm. I've, I, I've really enjoyed the interviews Richard Stanley has made on the I, podcast. I love Richard Stanley. I loved, I loved Hardware. I loved yep. uh, Dust Devil. I, um, I'm a big fan of the Lost Souls documentary. I, I, I love that documentary. Um even the weird um, pseudo mockumentary did after that. I was not a big fan of Colorado space, okay. but I don't want to discolor it for you. Um, discolor it for you. I see what you did there. Uh, yeah. Now watch it on your own accord. Don't sure. let me, don't let me do anything to you, but um, um, I was not a fan though. Yeah. I guess I'll, I'll finish off in a, a Nick. I got in a conversation uh, on Twitter. Someone is asking for Nicholas Cage movies to recommend that were not the rock or, uh, you know, Nat- National Treasure or one of those. And I recommended one I reviewed, I think back in 2012 or 2013 for Battleship Pretension, called uh, Rage. Uh, un- unfortunately, the, um, the the cover art is awful. It's Nicolas Cage in sunglasses. Aren't they all? With the fire behind him. It looks like a ripoff of Taken, which yeah, is okay. not what the movie is. And, and the movie is not great. Nicolas Cage's son plays Nicolas Cage as a young man, noticeably fatter young man who doesn't look a whole <laughs> lot like Nicolas Cage. But um, the, the message at the end about violence with guns and the, the plot twist as far as what sends him on this crazy mission after, to go after the Russian mafia is, I think, pretty um, pretty unique. And it's worth searching out, I think, just for the, the ballsiness and at the same time kind of stupidity of its ending. Yeah. I have to check that out. Um, one Nicolas Cage movie I, I was a huge fan of was the um, Herzog remake of yes. Abel Herrera's Bad Lieutenant, which was awesome. Herzog I mean, New Orleans, yeah. yeah, I was not expecting it, but man, I love that movie. So yeah, no, it's a, that's a wild, fleep, that's a wild fucking freaky flick, man. Yeah, Thrasher, do you have a Nicolas Cage uh, treat? Oh. God. Gosh, the what was it the 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 parents? Oh, mo- is it mom and dad? Oh no, is mom that... and dad. That's what yeah. yeah. Mom and dad yeah. is the most recent one that really really left an impression on me. Where you know all, all I'm going to say about the parents is some some disease or something yeah. makes people instinctively want to murder their children. Uh, it and like and it, that's the only way it affects them. Uh, <laughs> just the moment you see someone who is descended from you 
to descend it from you, you just want to bash their brains in. And it's really interesting seeing Nicolas Cage, who is otherwise a loving father, dealing with this impulse that he and his wife suddenly get. And and it's and it's affecting everybody. The whole neighborhood is going yeah, to hell. Right. But but he's the character that we follow. Not just that, but his performance as the loving father near the start of the film is is almost note for note the same performance he gave in a Brett Ratner movie, uh, The Family Man. Mm. Like, like it, it's very similar to those kind of like uh, his happy persona before he goes nuts is like he did in those kind of sappy uh, uh, late '90s films, like a uh, Face Off. Maybe not Face Off, but <laughs> it, it's kind of the schmaltzy sort of. Uh, trying to play a normal dad, which Nicolas Cage can do a lot of things, but yeah. he never quite comes off as a normal, kind of, I don't know, I, I think of kind of like a Phil Hartman dad character or something. He, he can't right. really pull that off. But but yeah, no, Mom and Dad is a good film. Um, and yeah, we've, we've had a good discussion here about battles without honor and humanity. I almost said Hannity for some God knows reason. Uh, <laughs> next time, we're going to talk about the fourth film in the series, Police Tactics, which is... Um, not a great title, but I haven't seen the film, so maybe it works. A curious moniker, but an intriguing movie. Yeah. Um, very good. So we'll be talking about that. Uh, catch me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. Uh, l- lately, I've been doing a little bit of streaming on Twitch. I'm going to try to get back into that. I was streaming some of the original Legend of Kyrandia game. So uh, twitch.tv slash M-A-T-W-B-T. Uh, Thrasher. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Also, the Fading Suns Kickstarter is live. If you want to support oh, a really yep. awesome, uh, a really awesome space opera tabletop RPG with a really fascinating new system uh, that has a wonderful pedigree, I hardly recommend checking it out. And not just because I am writing some of the faction books for the new edition. It is a really, I'm really looking forward to this new edition of the game. Is this, is this, I just looked on Google, is it this Fading Suns Pax Alexius? Uh, yes, Fading Suns Pax Alexius yep. is the name uh, of the Kickstarter. Fantastic. And you'll see some great art on that Kickstarter page. This is going to be probably the, this is going to be the best Fading Suns has ever looked. And uh, Alex, you have something to plug? Um, you can catch me on Twitter at CrabNebula1914 and also um, a YouTube channel, The Trailer Project, um, has been doing some fun new stuff. So check that out if you can. And also writing weekly columns for Battleship Pretension. Great. All right. So for Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. This is Thrasher. And this is Alex. Same. It's still hot. <laughs> <laughs> Turn your mother's sandals around. What kind of a man are you? I've got American cigarettes. Hey, Mom. Hey, Mom.